0: Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's guest is Kevin Gentry. Kevin works as a vice president for special projects at Coke Companies Public Sector and is a member of the Stand Together Board of Directors. Previously, Kevin served as the vice president of the Charles Koch Foundation. He also worked with the Institute for Humane Studies and the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Prior to that, he was the executive vice president of the Leadership Institute. Additionally, Kevin runs and distributes a weekly email to nonprofit leaders where he shares the best practices on fundraising and marketing and how to build effective donor relationships. Well, welcome to the show, Kevin. Glad you could be on.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Trevor. And I just have to say at the outset, I'm so impressed with what you all have done with seven-figure fundraising. It's so professionally well-organized. It's substantive. It's meaningful in terms of the value you're able to produce for so many people. So kudos to you all. Thank you for including me today.
0: Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show. And you've been requested by a number of our listeners to do an interview with you. So I'm glad we could find a time that worked. To start with, Kevin, I'd love to find out about how you first got involved with fundraising. So can you tell us about how you got involved and then maybe the story of your first fundraising ask?
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to. Thanks, Trevor. And if I go on too long, just cut me off because I can go on a bit on these kind of things. I came to work at the Leadership Institute, uh, Morton Blackwell's organization, immediately out of college. And I worked for a while organizing the seminars, the schools, the training programs, but I was frustrated that we weren't able to reach more people because we were limited by resources. And as hard as I worked, there was only but so much that we could grow. And I very naively or boldly or whatever it would be, went to him and said, look, I'd like to do the fundraising. And he replied, uh, no, um, that would mean I'd have to train you as a fundraiser and train your replacement. But he relented. He saw that I was really wanting to do that. And it just so happened that a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, uh, a friend of mine, sent me a brochure by Mal Warwick, who is a famous fundraiser for progressive causes based in Berkeley, California, a training program he was doing in Washington. And he sent it to me as a joke because he knew I needed to learn about fundraising. And I looked at the brochure and there was nothing that would prohibit my attendance. And I went to it And I learned so much in that weekend, and that really set me off on a journey of which very much tied to that is a desire for continual learning. And I'll come back to that a little bit later in our conversation.
0: So what was the big takeaway from that first training that you attended? And then how did that transfer into Fundraising Ask?
1: The big takeaway for me, which I'd heard already from Morton, and Morton had been trained by Richard Vigory, and they both had been trained by some of the giants of direct marketing and fundraising themselves, which was really key for me. The big takeaways was there were these rules of fundraising, and that many of them were counterintuitive. It seems like everyone is an expert in fundraising. I would never presume to try to fix my car because I have no idea how the car really operates. But for some reason, everybody and their brother and sister believe they're an expert on fundraising and freely give advice based on sort of a gut or intuitive notion. And what I immediately found was is that many of those uh, notions were not only good, they were actually, in many cases, counterproductive, thus saying that so much of the fundraising technology, the rules of fundraising, are counterintuitive. That was the key, and the other key was the value of testing. I mean, the best way to find out what truly the marketplace wants is to ask the marketplace what they want and to look at the results and then just to follow them. Don't try to presume what they might want.
0: And what's some of that counterintuitive advice that you found back then that still holds true today?
1: We know the most famous is that long letters often perform better than short letters in direct mail. There's an expression that there's never a letter too long, only too boring but it also relates to headlines, it relates to uh, lots of other body text, it relates to presentations, it relates to conversations. If you can take uh, your listener or the person that you're you're working with on a journey, work with them you know with the story arc and the narrative, help them understand the benefits of the proposition of what they're working on, all these principles of marketing such as positioning and differentiation in brand, Those things are not intuitively understandable, and I still struggle to understand some of them and I continue to study them, but the application of them has just startlingly more positive results than the alternative.
0: That's great. So thinking back to that first fundraising ask, do you remember what that was like where you sat down across from somebody? Can you tell us about that?
1: Oh yeah, there are two. Both of them were painful, and most of mine have always been pretty painful. My very first donor meeting was with the quintessential little old lady from Pasadena. She lived in this old home perched above the Rose Bowl in Southern California. She was a wonderful lady. I had two meetings scheduled, my first ever. I hadn't received really any sufficient and proper training to do this. And she talked nonstop for two hours. I mean, I couldn't get in a word edgewise. And I literally was sweating by the end of the conversation because I felt like I'd flubbed the opportunity to make an ask or even just to talk about our programs. And I needed to go to the next meeting and I had to excuse myself, but just totally humiliated that I just failed. And as I got up, she hugged me and said, I'm so glad that you spent all this time with me today. I learned so much about what you're doing. Now, that's an extreme story and there may be a little exaggeration, but, you know, being a good listener is so important in our world, and that was lesson number one. The next one is just kind of funny. I went to a donor who had given as much as two or $3,000 at once, maybe a couple times a year, and asked them for a uh, $50,000 contribution over three years for the Leadership Institute's building campaign back in the day. It was my first major gift ask in that way. And I took a colleague with me, and I was very nervous, and I made the ask. I thought everything just fell into place. It was ready. I did it. And the donor or the prospective donor leaned back in his chair and turned red and said, oh, my gosh, no one has ever asked me for that much money before. And I was a little shaken, and my dear colleague who was with me said, that's okay. Kevin's never asked anybody for that much money either. (laughs) well it actually broke the ice it was great and those are the kind of stories you can't forget
0: so did they end up giving you the fifty thousand?
1: he did he did he did that's obviously a good rejoinder question for you to come back to me with
0: wow that's great and so from there it was kind of downhill from there and you started kind of having more and more success and then what happened after that
1: well, yeah, I mean, we all, <laughs> downhill, it's more like a roller coaster, Right. and there's plenty of tense uh, moments. But yeah, you know, the key is the more you do, the more you learn, and you know that old thing, it's, and it's so true. You learn so much more from your mistakes. If the wind was always at my back and it was all downhill, yeah, sure, I probably wouldn't have learned anything, but it definitely was not <laughs> downhill with the wind at my back.
0: Right. Well, just to switch gears a little bit, we're recording this on May 13th. So we're obviously, most nonprofits are dealing in some way with the COVID 19 pandemic, and everyone's, you know, it's kind of uncharted territory for everyone involved. With all the fundraisers you interact with, what are you seeing are the trends with the major donors and the smaller donors right now, say in the last past two months, 12 weeks?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And again, one of those things I think is a little counterintuitive because I'll confess at the outset, I was just as scared of the situation. I mean, not only from a health standpoint, but from the standpoint of the financial, the societal, the social, the cultural, the political consequences of it all, and what it was going to do to people's psyches and their and their whole attitudes about fundraising, as well as their ability to give. And I confess I was probably a little paralyzed by fear at first, but What was so valuable to appreciate is the same thing that motivates a generous person to give persists. And if they still have that ability to give, and you're offering a credible solution to a problem they think is a serious problem, and they trust you, or they are willing to trust you as an initial uh, recipient of their gift, it's going to work. And it continues to work. I had learned years ago about what's called the, the marketing framework, it was later than that that I learned about the model of human action from Ludwig von Mises. And, and it's the same thing. And the model of human action terms, as you know, Trevor, the conditions that are necessary for a person to take action are number one, a dissatisfaction with the current state, or we might say the threat, the danger or the problem that a person sees is it credible? Is it relevant? Are they agitated? Do they want something to happen? Are they, are they moved to want to do something about the problem, whether that is emergency relief, whether that is threat politically, whether that is a concern that they might have about future generations? That's number one. Number two, you know, the vision of a better life. Or you might say, what is, what's the value of the solution that you're offering to somebody? Do they view that as significant, as something of, of merit? And then third, what's the path to get there? Is your solution that you're offering credible? Is the timeline, does the spending plan, do the steps along the way, do you as a deliverer of that solution make sense? If you can tee that up, it works virtually every time. That is to say that if the person you're speaking to agrees with the statement of the problem or the threat, they see it as relevant they are captivated by that vision of a better life, and they believe that you have a decent shot of delivering on that, then that's how it works. Virtually every time.
0: And where do you see that fundraisers most commonly fall down on those three steps? Like which one of those do they not articulate the best?
1: I know I fall down on them all the time. And one day I'm gonna develop this into enough of a habit that I won't uh, keep making the mistakes. But I think it's all three steps along the way. And, and what I mean by that is this. I think that, as Richard Vigory has said, he complains about what as a as a cuss letter. That is, that there are some groups that are good about cussing at the problem, cursing the problem, but they really don't offer a solution. So you can get somebody riled up about the problem.
0: Like selling fear, essentially?
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is, we could go on and on about just the moral consequences of doing that sort of stuff. That right. you're just too focused on the problem or the threat with no real plan. Or do you really have a reasonable shot at delivering on the on the plan? That's number one. Number two, you whether or not you use the the thread or the problem is that vision of better life. Is it something that it is attractive? And I think a lot of times we can get so wrapped up in process and jargon and our way of describing it and or or it's just too esoteric or too too vague or and, and it just can't capture someone's attention. And then the third is the path to get there. A lot of times people think all you have to do is lay out the problem and the solution, and that's enough, but there has to be an element that the person looks at you and says, yeah, I think you can deliver it. You've convinced me through that. Any of those steps that are missing, it won't get you there. I've done plenty of times when I've missed all three of those elements, but it's critical. And I would get, you know, so just as I said, utilizing all three is the ticket uh, for success missing any of those three, it's going to be hard to be really successful.
0: And with the COVID crisis, how are you seeing people incorporate those three steps with how they're talking to major donors? Like, are you seeing people prospecting as much now, or are they mostly relying and talking with existing donors today?
1: No, that's a terrific question. Thank you, Trevor. So I've been thinking about that. I think first, you know, my colleague John Fogarty uh, has used this term about being near, dear, and clear. And that's a great one. That is to your longtime, to your major supporters. You want to be in touch with them. And by the way, on that, I think it's easy to take for granted that somehow the donors don't want to hear from you. Many of your best donors consider you to be pretty close and important, and they want to know how you're doing and how you're involved in this. I think that being doing that is, is key. And some of the video options that we have now, Zoom calls, things like that, can provide an element of that just beyond a phone call since we can't meet with a lot of our folks in person. But I think the other thing is the two points. One is, is the problem we're trying to address relevant? Now, you know, one of the things that we're doing in our organization at Stand Together is called the Gift Together Now campaign, which we're working through a group called the Family Independence Initiative which is able to put $500 into the hands of needy families immediately. They've got a whole system and framework for doing it very effectively. And if you want to help people who've suddenly been thrown out of work through no fault of their own because of the consequences of the government's response to COVID, and you, want, you can you know, contribute $10,000 and 20 families are going to be helped, pretty quickly. So far we've been able to help 90,000 families in that regard. Wow. Well, that's that's awesome, but that's clearly tied to the relevance of a real problem right now. But what if you're not in that space, right? What if you're doing uh, educational training programs that are not related to COVID? Well, then it, you've got to understand then how is what you're doing relevant still to other problems in society that somebody would feel are relevant? The reason I bring that up is the less connected you are to what is dominating the news at any one moment, the tougher it is to prospect. When you're prospecting on an, on an issue of enormous immediate relevance, you're going to cut through the clutter and you're going to grab the attention of more people than you would otherwise. So it may work for you to prospect now. It may not. It mostly depends on, again, that framework, the model of human action and whether it fits in that neat little uh, uh, framing.
0: Right. Now, I'd imagine, too, like local nonprofits probably are doing better prospecting because people are thinking more along the community, even if they're not necessarily helping people with cash in hand sort of events or sort of a distribution.
1: Yeah, I think so. But then again, I would also say you got to test. Right. Uh, because, again, we, we're, we're thrown on our, on our heels all the time because we thought it would work and it didn't or we thought it wouldn't work and it would. I remember when I worked for Morton Black with the Leadership Institute, he had spoken with Richard Vigory about our building campaign effort. This was a long time ago. And Richard asked, Morton said, how did your house file letter do? And Morton said, it's the best house file we've ever had on this new building. And Richard said, well, Morton, you know the rule you take your best house file and convert it into a prospect letter, just as you convert your best prospect letter into the best house file. And I remember very well Morton calling me from that and saying, we've got to convert the house file into a prospect letter. And I said, Morton, that's crazy. Why would anyone who's never heard of the Leadership Institute before send a contribution to buy a building uh, when they've never heard of the organization? That just makes no sense. And he insisted that we, we test it, and, and I was really resistant to it. And finally we did, and it ended up being by far the most effective means of fundraising overall for the building. It ended up more than 60% of the donors that came into the entire campaign came in through prospecting. Wow. So you've got to test. It's just, it's crazy. I would say one more thing about relevance. I think this is a good example. Back in the in the late 80s, uh, as it had been in the 1970s, there were a number of organizations focused on national security through the interest of the United States with respect to the Soviet Union. And when the Berlin Wall fell, those organizations, for the most part, collapsed because there was no revenue stream. You might say, well, why would they be around anymore? Well, you know, many of them insisted the threats were still there in many ways. But if you're a donor, you say, well, you know what? We address that threat. That threat doesn't exist anymore. I'm going to move on to the next threat. And so, the perceived relevance of the threat is just very important in how you fit into it.
0: And do you think two questions? One, just circling back to the Leadership Institute letter, why do you think people responded in a prospect to a prospect letter that talked about <laughs> building a building? Like any I don't, intuitive I don't know thing for sure. that doesn't make sense I mean, to me, you know. Uh, so I'm curious.
1: I will say one one thing that I recall from it, but again, you don't you don't know for sure. We had a famous letter at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University that lasted as the test package for maybe 10 years, signed by Morris McTeague, a visiting scholar from New Zealand who led a lot of the dramatic economic reforms in New Zealand. And, like, well, why in the world would that letter work? And he had a P.S. in the letter that said, I bet you don't often get a letter from a sheep farmer in New Zealand, but I do think this project is worth your consideration. And that PS was quoted back by so many donors. Like, what? Are you serious? But that's that's the way it it works. One of the things I learned from Mel Warwick, I learned from so many other, other great fundraisers, was the importance of a of a true, authentic survey to your supporters, not one of these just you know devices that's done to you know gin up anger or what have you. But a, a lot of open ended questions, and we asked you know to sort of rank programs. And then one key was, how would you describe the importance of, I think it was, it was, it was the Leadership Institute. And it was from the responses that we came up with this tagline, which was training the next generation of conservative leaders. And we got the tagline because that was the most dominant phrasing that the supporters used to describe why they supported the Leadership Institute. So we wove that into the package. Now, I won't say that was the attribute, but you can see how that kind of stuff can be very important.
0: Right, so it's basically taking how your donors are already describing you and not trying to change the wording, but finding those commonalities and...
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Kind of going downstream with it, right
1: and in a related way uh, david ogilvy uh, who was just rereading uh, confessions of an advertising man and yeah, ogilvy on advertising the other other day to understand uh, some branding issues was dealing with a copywriter and he famously wrote in his book and he said look you're hanging out in new york too much get on a bus and go to the train station and take the train to the middle of the united states and you know take a bus somewhere else the train back and talk to people along the way and come back to me and write how those people speak to you. Another great marketer I've worked with for a number of years, the agribusinessman in California, Dino Cortopassi, a phenomenal guy, reminded me recently that one of the most important lessons is using the words and terms and phrases that your prospective customers use. Now, I did that description of that tagline, which was the combination of all those, But I'll also say one of the biggest traps I think many of our nonprofit organizations fall into, as we were saying earlier, in terms of falling into jargon and inside speak, is it just doesn't make any sense. You know, we all have this challenge when we go home uh, or with family at Thanksgiving, a broader family event, and and a relative says, no, what do you do? Well, how do you answer that (laughs) in a short phrase or sentence that's meaningful to someone who doesn't live in our world? Being able to do that kind of stuff is extraordinarily important.
0: Yeah. And I find like when we do in our workshop and have people talking about their work, a lot of times asking them the question, how would you describe this sitting down with someone over coffee, like helps them kind of switch into like normal people speak, you know, kind of away from the jargon or like, how would you describe it to your best friend seems to be a good way to kind of help people clear that filter.
1: Yeah, and, and Trevor, that's a great point too. And another great marketing uh, lesson is speaking in terms of benefits rather than features, or that is, how is it useful to the recipient as opposed to just describing it? You know, one of the things we often do is my organization, the Center for the Study of Great American Principles, is a 501c3 nonprofit educational foundation that's nonpartisan. What on earth? I mean, does it sound like right, you yeah, just you landed no from outer space? Yeah, exactly. That's meaningless and counterproductive.
0: So what do you find works really well for people helping them clarify their message? Because you have this dynamic where jargon, it's really important internally to have jargon because you know shorthand for conveying really complex ideas for the most part, but then transmitting that to someone who just supports your cause and you know, is financially invested but not invested enough to know all the lingo and all those sorts of things. What have you found works well for kind of making them speak more just regular everyday American?
1: (laughs) I think the biggest correlation is how much they deal with the general public or maybe their supporter base or their activist base or what have you. One of the greatest things i miss i don't miss commercial air travel so much in one respect but i do miss being with our supporters and listening and hearing how they describe you just as i noted earlier is so important tim phillips is the president of americans for prosperity and he's enormously effective in his role there and he goes across the country meets with their grassroots activists all the time And they love him. They don't feel condescended to like so often happens with leaders of national organizations. They feel like they're connected to him. And I've observed everything from how he communicates with them on Facebook or Instagram or in emails or texts or when he's in front of a TV camera or whatever it is. He speaks in a manner that they easily understand and is clearly connected to their benefit so that they feel like they're being they're being loved You know, they're being admired. They're being respected. Now, if you saw Ken Burns' great special on the history of country music recently, that hole in the marketplace that country music filled was shown was this huge chunk of the United States that felt condescended to by many of the, at the time, music elites on both coasts, and that it was a matter of speaking directly to. Just hearing and being able to do that, it goes back to being a good listener.
0: Right. Huh, I hadn't heard that about country music. That makes a lot of sense, though, because those are stories typically about kind of everyday events, common things, you know, breakup, love, you know, losing your job, these sort of things that we all experience more generally, but less talked about. Huh, that's interesting. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit. I know you've already given us tons of fundraising advice and ways to think about it, but you've done now had, you know, 30 plus years of fundraising experience. You've worked with some incredible organizations, lots of incredible philanthropists throughout the years. I want to just talk a little bit about the mindset of major donors and then contrast that too with the mindset of fundraisers. So what do you think is the most misunderstood or biggest misconception about major donors?
1: (laughs) Well, I put all donors into the same category, and I don't think there's that much difference between a mega mega donor and someone who sends you five dollars online right in the moment. There's some variances, but in many ways they're they're very similar. First of all, I would say that, and this is crazy, Trevor. I don't know if you agree, but you know donors are real people too. Mm-hmm. But it's funny in a nonprofit organization, you hear it all the time, you're like, oh my gosh. There's a donor on the phone or there's a donor in the lobby. Well, you know, they didn't just arrive from outer space. They're, they're just they're human. They, they love what you're doing. They, they actually believe in the same things you believe in. They're just acting. It's sort of like a partnership by you know, division of labor by comparative advantage. You're doing one aspect of the work. They're doing another aspect of the work. They're providing the financial resources while you're actually getting it done. It's a great partnership. I think that is one thing that is that is a tough thing to grasp. It's often misunderstood, but when you think about it, it's easily understood. Now, the f- best way, see if you agree, to address this is that we should all be active donors ourselves, and we should mm-hmm. see how we're viewed and how all this world works. Mal Warwick said to me years ago that – he thought that one of the biggest challenges for nonprofit fundraisers, most all because it, you know we start in an entry-level role, start it's one of our first jobs, is that we don't necessarily have the same life experiences as the people we're meeting with. Well, that makes sense because the typical donor is 72 years old. And by the way, that typical donor has not been frozen in time for the last 40 years. The typical donor has been 72 years old for the last 40 years meaning really it's roughly at that stage in a person's life. Maybe they've sold their business, or maybe they've retired, or maybe they just have different focuses. Their expenses are different, but they tend to be more focused on philanthropy. But they are at a certain point in their life. They have different perspectives, and understanding where they're coming from is very important. So I would throw out the biggest lesson I've learned from all of that is the importance of peers, or as Bill Strutman says, natural partners. Working with other donors just like them. We all try to do things as people very much like us also do. And so Mm -hmm. far better for a donor to hear from a donor just like them than from, you know, me who works in this space, has a certain special interest in the outcome of my solicitation (laughs) and also just hasn't had the same life experiences.
0: So how does that look like when you have a peer communicating with a donor or a prospect? What have you found are ways to do that?
1: Well, the more engaged they are in the outcomes, the better. And I'll tell you, you I've I've read this for a long time, but I finally experienced it about 15 years or so ago at my own church. I was helping on a stewardship initiative and we were trying to raise money for something and i noticed that the ones who were giving were not the ones i the ones who were giving most generously i were not the ones i would necessarily would have thought were the ones who would be the most generous based on what i thought was their ability to give but it was entirely correlated with how actively engaged they were in the church
0: oh interesting
1: the more engaged the more generous the less engaged the less generous, not 100%, but overwhelmingly across the board. Now, duh, and most fundraising professionals will tell you that's the case, but the more engaged they are as true partners with you and the outcomes, the better. That's why board members tend to be more generous, particularly if they are truly engaged board members.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And so, on the fundraiser side, like understanding that, what do you think when it comes to fundraisers asking for major gifts? what's the mindset challenges that you think they need to overcome? Like understanding this partnership right. <laughs> model, but like what else?
1: Sure. Trevor, I went to a, a Heritage Foundation fundraising a training soon after I had also started fundraising. And I went to a little workshop and many of the people we know were leading the workshop and it was major gift fundraising, how to ask for $500. And I asked the question, I said, I can't conceive of asking somebody for $500. I can't imagine ever giving $500. So I can't, I don't even can't grasp that. And I remember the the instructor kind of looking at me like, you know, who let this guy in? What a loser. <laughs> and, but, but it's true and it's, it's tough to overcome that. Uh, another one of my brilliant fundraising moves was I was with a, a prospective donor who suddenly asked me what it was I wanted to seek support from him for, and I, I wasn't prepared, and I started sort of nervously sketching out on a piece of paper what it was that we were trying to do, and it, and it sort of captivated him, and he said, well, what are you looking for from me? And I was, again, a little unprepared, and I, and I couldn't even blurt it out, so I wrote intended to write $50,000 on the piece of paper. And I don't know whether it was a it was divine intervention or what, but when I got to that fourth zero, I went ahead and added a fifth, and it became five hundred thousand. <laughs> and he said, "I'll do it." And my immediate response was, "You will?" <laughs> <laughs> and wow. you know, just that difference. Well, it's it takes a lot to ask for that much, but I think it was Jerry Huntsinger, the famous direct uh, mail writer, or somebody along these lines, said. Look, there's no shortage of funds. It's a shortage of good ideas. And a lot of it is just, I mean, you can't ask for some fantastical amount that's not grounded in reality. And if you're trying to raise $5 million for a special campaign, you don't ask the first donor for $4.5 million of it. But right. you can ask for a lot. As you well know, and you all have demonstrated with seven-figure fundraising, if they have the ability to give, it's really a function of back to that whole model of human action, in terms of the problem, the threat, the solution or the vision of a better life and the path to get there.
0: So I have to ask, was that your most profitable typo,
1: like writing that extra zero <laughs> in your life? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it, it was certainly one of those. Uh, there are so many examples of how I fell into it by sheer dumb luck or ignorance or what have you. If it was brilliant, it was probably somebody else's idea.
0: Well, what's funny is he might have said no to uh, 50000 because maybe you yeah. would have thought it wasn't enough to get done what you were pitching him on, essentially.
1: Well, let me give you another good example, and I've used this lesson many times. I was with, it was actually with Tim Phillips, the President of America's Prosperity, on a major donor ask. I was kind of riding along. We were going to some other meeting, and he asked a donor for $100,000 for an effort, and the donor said no, just no. Like, okay, <laughs> all right, we, we moved on. I had to go back to that donor a couple months later, and in the course of a bigger effort, I asked them for a million dollars, and they said yes. Now, no credit to me. I want to be very clear on that. That's not what my point is here. And I was like, wow, that's that's great. How do you want to divide the gift up among these various efforts? And uh, he says, well, you tell me. Give me some options. And one of the options was Americans for Prosperity, and he said, okay. I'll give them $300,000. Well, the ask really wasn't that much different than what he said no to for the $100,000, saying yes to the $300,000. And I don't know for sure what it was, but I do think the million-dollar ask was more captivating and really felt fit his interests. So it was less about the organization itself and its mission than it was in how it sort of fit into the broader bigger value proposition and how it it reached the imagination and excitement of the prospective donor.
0: And do you think that's because like, as I don't know his background, but I would assume he had built wealth, you know, owning a company or something like that, like his scale of what he thought possible had expanded, you know, you talked about earlier, the $500 seemed like a crazy high number to be asking. But like, for someone like him, you know, maybe, you know, he had several million dollars or several tens of millions of dollars that he brought in in each year in revenue with his company. So he's more sensitized to larger numbers and understanding what can actually be done with a million versus $100,000.
1: Yeah, I think this is another good example. And and I, you've hinted at this before. Some folks who are listening to this would know about it. But at what we used to call the Coke conferences, the Stand Together mm-hmm. conferences, we hit upon a fundraising lunch in 2009 that was very successful and then really paved the way for transforming our approach to fundraising and what we're able to do. And it's an amazing example. I'll try to give it to you really quickly. Everything was at the right place. This meeting in July, 2009, this was having to do with some issues in the public policy space, but uh, legislation had just been passed, which was of a dangerous and controversial nature. The world looked scary, there was a semblance of a plan we had just put together. There was a certification for the plan among those there, but it was not exactly clear what we were trying to do. And I won't name the businessman, but he approached and said, look, I think I'd be willing to give a million dollars to this effort. I'm like, wow, that's that's amazing. And he says, if you just want to announce that at lunch, I'm good with that. And remember, we famously said, uh, not me, but someone with me said, no, 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 no. You announce it at lunch. Well, in fact, you go, just go up to the microphone and say you're going to do it, and let's just see what, how the rest of the audience reacts. And he announced that million-dollar contribution, and more than $14.5 million was pledged, contributed at that luncheon. And it wow. was an electric time. It was, it was, you could never repeat it. Everything was just right. The moment was right. Everybody was shocked by the nature of the whole thing. It was just crazy. But here's the thing. And I've cited this many times. If that donor had said, I'm going to do $10,000, and we'd say, that's great, go up to the microphone and say that, then I think we probably would have raised you know, $145,000, meaning he set the bar, he was a peer, he set the, it was, the amount was right. He was going to do a million. So somebody else says, OK, I'll do $500,000, or I'll, I'll do a million and a quarter to this. But if he had said $10,000, or if he'd said $100,000, the response I think would have been in relatively equal proportion, so sometimes it's just understanding going back to that point about natural partners or peers, a lot of times people just want to know what's what's the right thing to do what what, what am I to, what's expected what would be the most useful? Okay, you told me that's helpful, and by the way, that's also the value of giving clubs or recognition clubs, which is a subject for another day I think
0: that's such an interesting point, like to that peer power, right? Because you have this dynamic where, where things are uncertain, people aren't sure what the right amount is, you know, like you're trying to do this big project, do these big things, but who knows, you know, like you said, 10,000 or a million, but just somebody putting that anchor down and that one number, it's like, okay, that's what, you know, this guy I respect's doing. So that makes a lot of sense. It's really interesting that first mover having that happen, kind of starting that cascade.
1: Yes. Yeah. You know Robert Cialdini the great social psychologist talks a lot about this among one of the techniques of persuasion but let's take it real back to the Thanksgiving dinner where we're trying to explain to our family what we do for a living let's just say somebody it's a broad, it's a big family dinner it's at 40 people and somebody announces to the group that hey you know we need to do something for our our dear grandmother who passed away last year The college was very important to her, and we've been thinking about setting up a little scholarship fund in her honor, and I just wanted to say that, you know, we've talked about it among our family, and we're going to try to kick it off and give $1,000. Now, you can easily see how everybody in that room would be motivated along those lines because of common interests, common, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, life experience, but also sort of knowing what the right thing to do was. And maybe it's even that's not even monetary. Maybe it's I've decided I'm gonna do X. Well, you know, that sounds right. I think I should do that too. Oh, you're gonna work at the soup kitchen, I'll work at the soup kitchen too. It's that kind of thing.
0: Right. When they talk about that whole dynamic of we wanna be near peers, we wanna be with people that we respect and like that comes through with giving. Like it's no reason why that you know, if that works in all other areas of our life, why wouldn't that work in giving? That's such an important point.
1: Well, I think you'll do it very well in seven-figure fundraising. You build a nice community of your the participants in your training that have similar and shared life experiences, and that mm-hmm. dynamic contributes to better learning and contribution as well.
0: Right. Well, and you're also trying to create that safe space where people can feel okay to admit that they don't know something, you know, because it is challenging when something is your job and your work to come in and, like, be willing to accept training, right? Like that yes. takes a big step.
1: Yes. I know I've been in this boat many times, but I would venture that a lot of us involved in fundraising many times don't quite want to admit to our peers what we don't know.
0: Right. Well, it's one of these dynamics too where a lot of times you get promoted into a job like leading a nonprofit where they're like, Oh, and you just need to learn fundraising. You're really good at doing like the business side of the nonprofit or the technical side and, and, You know, you'll make a great CEO just figure out fundraising.
1: You got it. And that is one of the biggest failings, particularly because for decades now, there's very little educational preparation given in higher education for the nonprofit sector, especially in the fundraising side, even though nonprofit sector is 15% of the economy. And a lot of folks, A, think that it should be intuitively known how to do this. And so they just, you know, make the same mistakes, reinvent the, the wheel, or they either may not have the humility to admit that they don't know, or they just don't know where they can get the training for it.
0: Right, And it's just hard, you know, like it takes, like you said, life experience, you go and 500 sounds like a lot. And then you, you know, a few years later asking for half a million by accident. (laughs) So I want to ask, you know, you brought up the seminar network and those events that you did, you know, starting really kind of finding your stride in 2009. What are some of the lessons learned with doing really large, high-end events? Like, what were your big takeaways from that experience and doing those repeatedly?
1: Well, clearly, as those of you, it's probably well known at this point, that these have been hosted by Charles Koch and his family, and that is the biggest, strongest asset and dynamic for all those reasons we laid out before about endorsement and certification and authenticity, and having skin in the game, and people wanting to know what the right thing to do is, all those things are very, very important. I would say just, you know, in quick order, this is not rocket science, but it's listening to your customers, providing to them what they want, focus, I mean, not necessarily doing everything that somebody would ask to be done, you would do the right thing, but just really understanding what's important to them, what's what are they looking to achieve in their lives? And, and, and they're and being around people with shared life experiences, shared principles, shared desires, those are some of the biggest contributing factors. Obviously, you want to do stuff in a business-like manner, in a professional manner, in a warm, welcoming manner. I think it's the Ritz-Carlton motto about the four principles of wanting to welcome your customer, make them feel comfortable making them feel important and making them feel understood that's a pretty good framework to utilize
0: yeah it's a really good point we actually had a i think it's the first episode of this season we had what the co-founders of the ritz carlton on that he was talking about the uh talking about those principles and how they apply to nonprofits. it was really this fascinating interview it's uh season two episode one for those of you want to listen So talking just a little more, like diving the next layer down with those events, you know, getting that group together and, you know, obviously having that really solid anchor with Charles Koch and just all of his life experience and business knowledge coming to the table. Do you think that sort of thing can be replicated by other people or is it something where you kind of had this unique moment in time and this unique, you know, individual who is willing to, you know, tap into his network and bring these other really successful people uh, in American business together, you know, is this a model that you would say other nonprofits should try to replicate on like a smaller level or is it something that's kind of unique to, you know, what you guys created?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question too. I'm obviously biased. I have a Mm -hmm. tremendous amount of admiration for Charles Koch and his family and he really lives out these principles of integrity and humility and it's been his life. So that's pretty awesome, and you sometimes can think, well, gee, there aren't many people like that, and sometimes I do conclude that there aren't many people like that, but there are. uh, There are many good people. There are many people who want to make a difference, who want to help improve the lives of others, and that's a good starting point. I think the important lessons are is to give that space for people who've lived these experiences to become engaged in your efforts and to look at that division of labor by comparative advantage. And that is, we in the nonprofit world ourselves, working full-time, have a certain role. We may not be the donors. The donors may not be that much different than the volunteer activists or the volunteers in the organization. They're just contributing their time, talent, and treasure in different ways. They have different opportunity costs. They may be at that point in their life where, they have physical limitations or what have you and can't go door to door canvassing for voters. But I think it's it's really it's built on the principles and built on trying to understand where folks are with these shared principles, shared outlooks, shared vision, shared culture, shared objectives, and then trying to bring them together in a way that works effectively to making, uh, making a difference.
0: All right. And you can do that on any scale, you know, whether you're raising $500 a person or, you know, $5 million, you know, if you bring those three, four things together.
1: Well, you know, that was one of the observations that Alexis de Tocqueville made many, many, many years ago. Uh, there was something special about America and Americans, but that spirit is still there and you still see it in community organizations, local nonprofits, churches. It's harder to scale at a national level or even a state level. But I think when that works best, I mean, you'd imagine one of the things that people are so frustrated today with political parties and is just that lack of true, real, personal engagement, whereas in many ways, those organizations that are still able to do that, maybe a religious institution or whatever it may be, they thrive and people have a strong sense of community with it and the benefits of feeling like that the community is there and has a tremendous contributing aspect to how they view their lives.
0: Right. Well, and to that point, I was we just had um, someone doing one of our trainings last week was telling us how he's talked to local churches, and through this COVID crisis where they can't have meetings, they've actually had more people participating in their online streaming services than they had in person, you know, on any given Sunday. So it's actually been this way by being connected to the community, and been this way to actually have growth that they would have never expected. But, you know, those ties and those connections were already built, you know, long before this.
1: Yeah. And by the way, doesn't it also speak to the power of of innovation or experimentation Mm -hmm. and testing? Um, You could very easily be wedded to old models and say, look, if we can't meet as a church congregation on Sunday, we just can't meet. But I mean, look how, who was using Zoom three months ago to the extent it's being used today? Right. Uh, Definitely not eight hours things. a day, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that side too. But but being able to adapt, uh, necessity is the, is the mother of invention, right?
0: Right. No, absolutely. Well, I know we're almost out of time here, Kevin, but we like to make this show You know, about learning and taking action as fundraisers. So, what's the one thing you'd like to challenge our listeners to either do or remember based on listening to you and all the advice you've given today?
1: Well, gee, I I think it's the thing that I try to remind myself every day. And Richard Vigory is one of my mentors who has made this comment about, you know, how Sir Isaac Newton said that he sees further or saw further when he was standing on the shoulders of giants, that there's so much to learn from others. And if you ever lose the desire to learn, you're dead. You won't grow. It's like prospecting. If, if in your organization, if you're not prospecting, you're not growing. If you're not learning, mm-hmm. you're not personally growing. And I would just say the biggest takeaway is read, 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 study, 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 learn, learn, learn. I mean, a 10, seven-figure fundraising training listen to seven-figure fundraising podcasts, read the seven-figure fundraising blog, and so on and so forth. But I think to sum it all up, another very important ingredient that is often overlooked is looking for mentors. And many people who've been experienced are very glad to serve as as a mentor, but there's so much to learn by those who have blazed those trails before you.
0: All right, That's such a great point. And I would say, too, and I forgot to bring this up earlier, is you have a fundraising newsletter that goes out once a week that's just fantastic and has tons of information. Do you mind just talking about that as one thing people can do? In addition, I'll say the second thing you can do is make sure you sign up for your newsletter. But uh, talk about that.
1: Sure, 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 sure. Anyone can shoot me an email. It's kgentry at standtogether.org. Just put on the subject line fundraising tip or send me the tips or the weekly emails, anything like that, and I'll just add you to the list. Uh, And as long as you want to read them, I'll send them to you. I've been doing it for about 15 years, and I'll tell you, I've learned so much in that process from the responses I get from people such as you, Trevor.
0: Well, thanks a lot for being on the show, Kevin. It's been great talking with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and share all the uh, years of knowledge and advice.
1: Well, thank you for what you're doing. This is a great service to so many folks as well and appreciate it. Keep up that good stuff. You're you're contributing in a manner that sometimes may not be fully appreciated, but it has enormous long-term consequences.
0: Thanks a lot, Kevin. We appreciate it. Thanks. If you're interested in learning more about the seven-figure fundraising system, we're going to be holding, for the first time ever, a live virtual workshop on July 13th, 14th, and 15th. This workshop will feature the same information that we cover in our in-person workshop, but for a third of the normal price. Here's what past attendees have said about the seven-figure fundraising workshop.
1: This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit and it's worth The time, the energy, and the money, because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization, and most importantly, into you, the person who's executing it.
0: The coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in in a dozen years of fundraising.
1: This is honestly, I'm sincere about this. This is the best training I've ever had.
0: If you want to learn how to find new major donors and grow your existing donors, this is the workshop for you. To find out more about the workshop, visit us at sevenfigurefundraising.com. That's sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks.